episode 197, the debut of virtual reality and augmented reality in healthcare. Today, I speak with Brian Pete, president of MediSolutions. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I speak with Brian Pete, president of MediSolutions, and we talk about virtual reality and augmented reality in use in healthcare today and its potential for the future. Both AR and VR are bi-directional tools with one main job, engage patients. Because while the patients are engaged, the environment is right for critical education a patient might need to understand and pull off their treatment plan. Or, something I hadn't thought about much, say a patient isn't going to hear a word that anyone is saying because they're too stressed out by their diagnosis, the situation, or maybe they are in pain. ARVR can be used to help individuals become calm, reduce pain, and get into a place where they are ready to take the next step in their healthcare journey. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Brian. Uh, thank you, Stacey. So before we go any further, maybe we should actually define what is virtual reality versus augmented reality. That's a question a lot of people have. These new technologies, as they come online, there's a lot of confusion in what they're really there to do. Virtual reality is the ability of a user to engage in a virtual world. So putting on a headset or a device, they are immersed into content. So imagine a place where you're watching a really good video or those old-fashioned 3D glasses in movie theaters. But take that to the next step where you're able to go inside that movie and be in the middle of all of that content and hearing the sounds and feeling the feelings that would be existing inside the movie, like one of the actors would see from their own eyes. So like Ready Player One. Like Ready Player One, exactly. Whereas augmented reality, you're using some form of a device like your iPhone, and you're able to see things that wouldn't normally be there. So small objects or creatures or something like Pokemon Go. So you're augmenting what your current reality looks like and, and adding things to it that aren't normally there. Yeah, and I've actually heard that Pokemon Go was probably more effective as a motivator for exercise to get uh -huh. kids to exercise and adults, nothing for nothing. It was far superior to create a game, a great game that induced exercise than to have exercise gamified say your reality is to go to the park, you know, uh, once a week, but you have a certain creature that shows up there five times a week, you'll walk to the park five times because it's part of the game experience. And you're using the tool to enhance something that you might normally do, or maybe make you do it a little bit more. The same thing with virtual reality. If you're going to use that tool, whatever you're doing, make sure you take advantage of what it offers, which is this ability to immerse and get away from your current environment. So not augment your environment, but escape from your environment and deliver something slightly different. I could see that many healthcare professionals might be a little bit stumped about how to use these tools to their advantage in a clinical setting. You know, what's the value of these 
various tools, maybe in terms of helping educate patients or patient outcomes or satisfaction or helping them get better care? There's a number of examples with virtual reality already, for example, in the clinical space, looking at things like prescriptive meditation, which is actually quite on the rise. So one would be, for instance, in an infusion center or in some highly stressful environment within the doctor's office, you can imagine patients have a very hard time focusing on what's being said or what's being delivered, but even more so, they might be under a high level of stress. Patients can actually reduce their need for things like pain meds. So that same patient who's in that chair in the infusion room might often have extreme pain going along with their cancer. And historically, people might be prescribed opiates as part of supportive care. It may be even infusional pain. Some of these drugs can cause some, some pain on infusion. And if someone was going through prescriptive meditation, not medication, but meditation within a VR environment, they're able to separate out from that environment. They're able to not feel the feelings that they would normally feel and escape it. And essentially, prescribing that at a level that it's shown in some clinical studies recently to be fairly equivalent to opiates in terms of controlling pain management. What does that look like, though? So I'm sitting in the infusion clinic, and I'm assuming that I get like goggles or something, which I think probably most people have seen. And what am I experiencing? The doctor would assign or the staff would assign criteria or material that you'd want the patient to go through. So in this case... They would use a web dashboard and they would assign the education that they wanted the patients to experience, or in this case, meditation. One would go into a meditative place. So think of calm environments like being near some form of a, a jungle or being in a, on a calm beach or a mountaintop and then have a virtual voice, in this case, a, a pre-recorded person, kind of paces you through, talk you through and tell you what to do about controlling your breathing, and you're basically feeling the peacefulness of the environment. You're shutting out external stimuli by having headphones on. So it's essentially like you've been now taken away to a really great resort, and you have the best guru who's been able to educate you on how to do meditation. And that can all be started within literally seconds of you putting on the headset. And within five to 10 minutes, you've basically, you find yourself in an extremely calm state, these things can be monitored with wearables, and the doctor can see some of those results as well. But generally, when patients come out of those experiences, they find that they are very much settled and are in a state where even if the doctor did have to deliver information that was hard to hear, they'd be much more apt to be able to hear it. Do you find that there is an appreciation for the value of that amongst the provider community? Are providers these days valuing maybe patient engagement in general, but even more specifically the idea that, you know, if you're talking to a patient who's completely freaked out and in pain and they're not hearing anything that you've said, that that doesn't really count as an engagement? Yeah, I mean, I think providers do recognize that. According to a number of studies, been as far back and probably before this with in 2005, uh, Dr. Martin, clinical risk management, it was shown between 40 and 70% of patients don't actually get all the complex information that is being delivered to them. So essentially, these, these regimens that they're trying to describe to these patients are trying to deliver these complex regimens, try to talk them through how to do this. And very often, the patients won't be adherent to those complex regimens. And so doctors absolutely appreciate that. And the current environment, shared risk, contracting, and the things that doctors have to do 
They've been tasked to keep patients out of the hospital. They've been tasked to improve outcomes. And quite honestly, not only are they, you know, as providers to do the right thing and care for those patients, it's affecting them economically if their patients don't adhere to these regimens. So they're very much appreciative of how do I do a better job of educating my patients? How do I get my patient in a state where they can, you know, reduce their stress levels, which can absolutely improve outcomes? And how do I get them off of things like opiates? There's a national opiate crisis. It's killing more patients in the current era than car accidents. So they know that they don't want to have to prescribe opiates if there are other alternative methods. So they're looking for any alternative method they can get. So I think the biggest challenge for doctors is, is they have all of these great new options. But what I think they're trying to stack up against is they don't feel that they have enough time to deliver. They don't have enough time to do these new things, but they would really appreciate to do them. One of the ways that you know we address this and, and doctors have to think to some degree a little more broadly about it is that an average patient may spend about 84 minutes in that doctor's office. So although they're only getting eight minutes of the doctor's time, is there a place to add things like virtual reality or other techniques to help that patient learn, help that patient calm down from their stress? Or if they're in the infusion room, sometimes for hours, is there a way to basically improve that patient experience and have better outcomes? So I'm inferring based on where this conversation just headed that besides the meditation program, the other things that you can do using either virtual reality or augmented reality, and I'd like to get some specifics there, you can walk a patient through like, you know, maybe they put the visor on and they see themselves in a home and they see themselves opening the refrigerator and taking out an apple and foregoing the Cheetos. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Or you're showing them, okay, you know, before the CAT scan, you're supposed to drink half a bottle of this. You know what I mean? Like, and you actually see that happening? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. So a fielded bit of research we're doing right now with endocrinologists for diabetes management, looking at type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So having patients understand essentially what does healthy look like to them? So if they have a healthy state in their body and they're able to see both an external and an internal view and from internal view from type 1 diabetes, understanding what the pancreas is doing, understand what the kidneys um, and how they function, understanding at the cellular level. And how can you do that other than going right to that cell and seeing exactly how sugar is working with the cell, how insulin functions, but understanding from the impact it has on your body in that immersive environment within VR can be incredible because people can really kind of get it. The, the light will go on and they'll understand that, yeah, this is a problem. I do have something going on here. And then furthermore, seeing how the drugs or treatments might work. You can serve it up in such a way that it is interesting and educational without being like overly scary to them where they're seeing, you know, real people with real amputations might be way too much, but seeing it within a environment where they're learning and they're imagining that this is their body and if they didn't take their therapy, it can actually have real impact. We're fielding this now with endocrinologists and we believe that the education piece of this is a huge component that if patients understand what's going on, that they'll be much more able to talk to their doctor, get appropriate feedback, have the right kind of engagement and ask the right kind of questions. 
You cited a statistic before, which is very interesting, that on average, a patient spends 86 minutes in the practice office, but only eight minutes with a physician. And I'm going to assume another you know, marginal amount of time actually engaged with nurses or, uh, or other care extenders. There's a lot of sitting around. Is the vision that the provider office has a couple of these, what do you call them, units, the headsets around in the uh-huh. office. And then during time, which the patient would have been sitting around flipping through Better Homes and Gardens or watching whatever daytime talk show is on the TV, instead of those kinds of activities, the patient would be kind of taken through like, okay, your first stop is going to be over at our virtual reality room or something. Is that how it works? Yeah, it, you know, exactly like that. Each doctor's office is going to have a different management of their kind of their flow and their process. It may be that they check in and then they sit in the waiting room, sometimes for a half an hour or more. Some offices choose to use that as a time where the staff would come out and have the patient be able to engage in virtual reality. More often than not, though, is that when they go to the actual exam room, there will be a station that will be close by or even in the actual room where the devices will be used and they'll be able to experience that while they're waiting for the physician. You know, at the point of care, there's lots of opportunities for patients to interact with various testing devices and other things. And now we firmly believe that you'll see more and more as you work with these different physicians and hospitals and different centers, that they'll find a place that these fit within their environment. And we were, I was referring to before, Infusion centers is one of the places, right? Patients spend hours in a chair. So it's very physician-specific, but there's a number of times where there's dead space. Is this unidirectional or is it somehow bidirectional? So say I already know this stuff. Can I be like, okay, well, I'm going to close that book virtually and open up this other one with me because this is too basic? Or, you know, how does it take health literacy into account or does it? Yeah, it does. So there's a couple of things there. You, you alluded to a few things. So on the first one, I'll, I'll address the, the second part of the question first. It's actually a learning engagement environment. So as patients go through these experiences, they're asked questions, essentially, and there's answers. And those answers are put into somewhat of a decision support tree. And that will give the ability for the physician after the engagement to have a conversation with the patients and essentially be able to assign them new learnings based on where they're at in their understanding of the disease. But also the tool itself has a ability to direct new education. So as they finish an experience, they will be served up more similar content. So similar to when folks go online and they search for content, other content will be served up to them to continue that engagement. Patients can self-select and learn a little bit more. You know, one of the things that from a behavioral science perspective, I have heard from many guests on the show and on Twitter, how important it is to make sure that we're meeting the patient where they are and ensuring that what the goal that a patient wants to achieve might not necessarily be like nobody wants to, uh, you know, just hypothesizing here, but but probably people don't want to eat healthy just for the mere sake of eating healthy. Like they want to eat healthy because they want to be able to go on the ride with their grandkid or, you know, like there's very specific goals that they're trying to achieve. And, and generally speaking, being able to identify what those goals are and then 
being able to show that the treatment plan suggested is going to help the patient achieve those very personal, very individualized goals. Like that's education that's going to work. And that's really hard to achieve. Is there a way that using the capability of augmented reality or virtual reality, you can better implement kind of behavioral science type things? Yeah, absolutely. So here's an example out of Asia recently. They have a ability to map your likability patterns from your eyes. So imagine you're in a virtual reality environment and you're looking around a room of content. And let's let's just think that that room is similar to what you might normally see in your own house. But on the counter, there's a product, a product that's um, something that you're very interested in. Your eyes spend a long time there, but not only do your eyes spend a long time there, there's a, a brain monitoring with an EEG that's tied into the virtual reality experience. So likability for that object can actually be shown through brain patterns. Simple things like auditory commands, being able to speak through things and pick up on inflections and changes in voice. These things are already well integrated into phone systems. So modern day application of these pieces you know, together is absolutely already happening. What will happen is, is you'll be able to interact with others in the virtual reality environment or patients themselves can have preference shown simply by looking at things or speaking about those things, the devices will be able to pick up on that information and drive the next part of that experience. Almost anything you can do in the real world and then add a few other layers to that with all of the diagnostic and monitoring type of information that you're getting can really improve that experience. Your pulse rate being fast can be affected by meditation and you can control what you see in the, in the environment for instance, by calming your pulse rate, you can affect the experience that you're seeing. So really amazing things can be done that will be done in virtual reality that you couldn't really do other places. So it's probably far superior to some of those other channels um, because of the diagnostics. So get I, I'm getting the idea of, of the diagnostics. Let me ask you this just really short question. Can I speak to the thing? I'm in the virtual reality. Is somebody asking me questions and I'm responding verbally? Yes. A virtual reality avatar could ask you a series of questions. It doesn't even have to be a real person within the environment, and you can auditorily respond. So if you're to respond to a, a virtual reality avatar and say, I would like to go into the kitchen and see something and talk to them, and then you can change your experience based on natural language and, and auditory. Absolutely can speak to them. I'm trying to translate what you were just talking about with the biofeedback and the auditory into how is this individualized for every patient to kind of meet them where they are. So I definitely can see from a like learning level standpoint, you sense that someone's getting irritated because this is the eighth time they've watched the insulin video or, you know, mm -hmm. and it, or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it's just it's too basic for them or maybe they're confused and it's too advanced that you definitely could sort of figure that out and ask a question like, is this too? easier, too hard, and then kind of steer them in a different fashion. Is there a way, though, that they say, obviously, social determinants of health are huge, especially with diabetes care. Is there a way, and that, that's something that education just about insulin or, or whatnot is really, would be really difficult to 
integrate within, you know, if someone's not ready to learn about their disease because they just got fired from their job or something, then uh-huh. all of this is kind of in vain because they're not paying attention anyway. Is this where the meditation comes in? Like where if the, the system picks up that you've got somebody here who's just not into it, that there's kind of a separate track that's more geared toward helping them actually get to the place where the education is going to matter? Or is, is that too future tense? It's not really too future tense, but I think it's more about application. So most of the experiences that are out there are very much specific towards a goal. So the tools themselves are not you know, within the VR world are not at the level, you know, mostly limited by processing power, to be honest at this point, but they're not at the level that other intuitive tools can be for managing a lot of these types of things. But there's different ways that it's approached. So here's an example. So up at MIT, the, you know, students there, I think it was even a couple of years ago, were already experimenting with basically self-regulating your mood and driving your VR experience. So here's how they would do it. You can actually levitate within the VR world. So allow your body to float in the air, but only if you can get your pulse rate to go down and your breathing rate to go down. So that actually controls your experience. So there's something to monitor your pulse. There's something to monitor your breathing. Everybody understands that those these things exist pretty readily. Have a Bluetooth integration into your experience where if you can get your pulse down and your breathing down, you can allow yourself to levitate and experience great things. So essentially, you're self-teaching your body to drive the experience. Or there's one where you have a candle, and you can make the candle light get larger or smaller based on how you're controlling your stress responses. So if you're getting more nervous, the candle starts to shrink. If you're getting more calm uh, physiologically through brainwave patterns, breathing, or other responses, then the, the candlelight will increase. So you're essentially controlling your user experience based on your physiologic uh, interactions. So it's more of a kind of a tactical and self-learning mode right now mm-hmm. rather than being a broad experience. And, and how the broad experience is really handled within this in terms of getting somebody to move along within their own personal dialogue of their health, you use data. So the backend system that we have has data and that data can be shared based on the patients opting in and, and or physicians may opt in. And then they would get other tools that they could interact with or other pieces of that dialogue or story that will help them move along. So after that experience, let's say they really had enough. They learned all they can learn. They really don't want to learn a lot more, but yet they showed interest in certain aspects within the VR experience um, or wanted to know more about certain things. You can use other tools from the data that will drive back toward the patient to say, send me an email, give me a phone call, or register me for that class where I can go and do exercise. So using the currently available things that are in the market provided with the data that you get out of that experience is probably the best way to get the patient to make some real changes. You're basically using the VR AR as a motivator. You know, you're engaging the patient, figuring out what they are interested in vis-a-vis the biometric feedback or kind of what they choose to go look at or what they say. And then you can kind of customize based on the information that comes out. The clinician can say, okay, or the nurse, this is what we should do next based on where you're at. Yep. If they, if they have an interest in learning about healthy eating 
and they opted in to send that information or they responded with an experience as a health physician, I would like to know more about this healthy eating. The physician can provide a link to the insurance company or the hospital's current menu choices or even get them enrolled with a uh, dietitian or an educator to basically continue them moving along with proven techniques. And would those links be something that was provided offline or are you customizing the AR VR programming for every facility that you're putting the system into? Right now, since it's so early, you know, the device that we're using has only been available for a few months. So to say that it's at a level of sophistication where we're providing all this online is, is pretty tough. But right now, it's mostly customized based on the need of the institution or, or physician. But we do see a point where this becomes fairly standardized and probably within a very short time, within a year or so, as the content level increases and these things become faster and easier to use, meaning the devices. You at, over at Medi Solutions, you are, have a an advertising model. So the provider organizations that choose to take you up on this and install the system, this is free for them? Yes, it is. It is free for the providers and for the patients that are viewing the content. Being an advertiser model um, means simply that the pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, and you know, in some instances, you know, education societies or, or, the, or other third parties build content with us that will emphasize their approved drugs or their approved devices. Take it, for instance, where there's a new drug that's never been used before. Patients may go out and do a big, broad Google search and learn everything they can learn about that drug, but very often a doctor has to bring them back and kind of detwine all of that stuff that they've learned about and tell them how it really should go. Well, if the company could provide a very engaging educational virtual reality session that lasts five minutes and they can teach them everything they might need to know and then the doctor gets results on what they actually retained, I find that would be a far more valuable way to deliver it. And so the advertiser model there is doctor prescribes medication, there's a virtual reality bill that the pharmaceutical company may have provided, they watch the video and they understand and engage in the video content or the VR content and learn it at a level that they wouldn't normally be able to learn, but very directed at the point of care. For having that kind of content available allows physicians and patients to access the rest of the content that we've produced. And there's quite a lot of it for free. Are you working with almost any practice? So if any of our listeners out there are physician practices and they're like, yeah, sure, I'll give this a go. I mean, is it merely that you just have to raise your hand and the setup pack with all the hardware shows up or how utopian are we here, Brian? (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I, I wish it was that easy. One of the limitations right now is content. So we have a moderate to fairly good amount of content in three specific areas, oncology, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. If they're much outside of that realm, they can certainly raise their hand. And as we get the content to the level that we need to, um, we'd be able to provide them this free educational content. Now, on the other hand, if pharmaceutical companies or others want to get their message out there and they're not one of those main disease area categories, they could work with us to make sure that we provide enough truly educational disease-specific content and we would work with them. Generally speaking, with an advertising model, obviously, one of the things that you have to show those pharma companies or whoever the sponsor is, is that you have a certain amount of distribution. And then there's the ROI for you guys, i.e. what is the cost of these headsets versus how much distribution is going to be available 
at that per practice office. So is there some limitations like the, the practice has to be a certain size or see a certain number of patients or how do you work that? Generally, to kind of fulfill everyone's needs, we're, we're doing a few different things. One, we're looking with uh, our own uh, analytics and finding out, you know, the busiest areas and practices. So as we proactively talk to physicians and set up practices, it is somewhat of a volume game. So being fairly busy is, you know, pretty important in the early stages here when you're initially starting out. But the brunt of the cost, um, to be honest, at this stage is completely managed by MediSolutions as, you know, we believe this is a critically important thing to do. So getting these devices in the offices is really on us, but, you know, working with partners to alleviate those costs like pharmaceutical companies would obviously be great. Is there any question that I didn't ask you, Brian, that I should have? You know, we did emphasize pretty deeply the patient side of what we do, although we have a pretty robust physician engagement side as well. So education directly to doctors, be that at at, uh, conventions or from physician to physician education, that's actually a pretty big need too. So when you're closing the loop on all this content and how it's being delivered out there, the physicians themselves need to understand things. And so we have a professional environment where physicians and staff can be educated in virtual reality. And the same thing holds true there. So retention of information is very poor for large, complex amounts of information for all types of individuals. And according to Dr. Kinney out of uh, Miami, they've seen with medical professionals, retention at a year out of as high as 80%, where through traditional channels, we're with a week of traditional training and learning, maybe as low as 20%. So, you know, physicians themselves are being educated. The channel of virtual reality and augmented reality is very heavily being used right now to do training and education. And we as well do a fair amount of that. And it is a critical need to close the loop. That is metasolutions.healthcare. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Brian. Great. Thank you so much. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.